Welcome everybody to episode number 20 of the Hopeful Majority. Yes, we made it to episode 20. I can't believe it. You probably can't believe it. And it is all because of you. Today, we've got another special episode. Now you're like, Manu, you said special last week. You said special before that. Well, last week it was special because we had some presidential candidates on. This week it's special, one, because of the guests. We've got Coach Bill Courtney on. And the question of the show is, what does it mean to learn from a life of hardship? What can we learn? What can we grow from? And not only is it special because there's an Oscar-made documentary uh, about Bill, Coach Bill Courtney's life, but also because we actually filmed this in the Memphis Grizzlies Stadium in Memphis, Tennessee, where Coach Bill Courtney's based. By the way, we actually recorded an hour and 30 minutes of a conversation for his podcast, The Army of Normal Folks, which you should check out. And for all of the new people joining every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, the hopeful majority comes at you because we've got outrage to fight nuance to build and we're going to do this together let's get on with the monologue for this show you know there's some conversations that you oftentimes have where it really changes not only how you think about hardship and inspiration but also it changes how you think about the importance of nuance in our society I'm going to keep this monologue pretty short uh, for the new folks joining. They're sometimes longer. They're sometimes shorter. Sometimes we don't have a monologue. It really depends on the conversation. And really, this is a conversation worth listening to. And you want to know what the take of my monologue is? Listen to the entire conversation. Um, I know we're all busy. We got a lot of things to do. You know, you're probably new to this podcast. It's a growing podcast, growing show. But Coach Bill Courtney is somebody. So just for some context, he was a fatherless child. He went, he had four different fathers throughout his life. He had a single mother. He lived in poverty. In fact, one of his dads, uh, once shot a gun at him, which he had to jump through the window and escape from. He then went to Ole Miss. He had a fascinating and very inspirational coach in his life in high school who changed how he thought about the world. After Ole Miss, he pursued a career slowly, slowly, slowly. And then he moved to a town where he actually coached a team of young black men in Memphis in a suburb and then took that high school football team and became national championship. There's actually a documentary writ, uh, uh, made about that journey. And I give you all of that context because this conversation touches on a lot of things. And in fact, the first three minutes start off with coach Bill Courtney talking about the value that he finds in America, that he thinks America is the greatest country in the world. Now, him and I both are not naive. We know that when you're listening to this conversation, you're going to immediately make judgments and assumptions right off the bat. But I want you to hold on because this conversation demonstrates the power of nuance that is necessary and needed in our society because he talks about a story. Uh, he's not some privileged person living out in Tennessee. In fact, he lived a life of hardship, of pain of suffering, but also of overcoming. And we've recorded a secondary conversation, his podcast, The Army of Normal Folks. And I think this conversation speaks to the power of what it means to take somebody in all their self, in their complexity of their identity, the multifaceted nature of how they operate, the fact that we oftentimes in our media environment today make one second judgments about people based on one clickbait article here or one line here, and yet this conversation is the epitome of what it means to have a hard, honest, difficult, nuanced conversation where you can't just listen to it for five minutes, but you got to hear the entire thing. And so I'm going to 
not filibuster any more longer because I want you to get to this conversation. Let's hear Coach Bill. Coach Bill Courtney, welcome to the Hopeful Majority, sir. I'm happy to be here. I hear you're building an army, and we've got a Hopeful Majority. What's the deal? What's going to happen? Well, you know, um, I, I am tired of uh, the narrative that we end up living our lives by being dominated by a few people in New York and D.C. and some of our other media and power centers. I think our country's always been about we the people, and I think it's high time an army of normal folks start mm -hmm. exerting their power, and the way they exert their power is by having um, their disciplines and their passions meet at a place of opportunity. So I want to go there a little bit. I want to really focus this conversation on your story because your story is so damn inspiring, especially for somebody like me to get a hold of. <laughs> but you and I just spent an hour and a half on your podcast, which is? An Army of Normal Folks. An Army of Normal Folks, which, by the way, the Army of Normal Folks don't fight the hopeful majority. We're on the same side. Don't, don't <laughs> take a lesson from military We're history. brethren. We're brethren. We're brethren. We're sisters. We're all part of the same same thing. And we're in the, for everybody that listens to our show, we'll, you'll notice that we're in the Memphis Grizzlies situation. There's like this guy right here. And as a Celtics fan, you've like put me into enemy territory. That's right. Well, there's probably a Marcus Smart Grizzly uh, caricature around here somewhere. Uh -huh. Might give you a little. <laughs> you'll make me feel better as we fly back. <laughs> so you and I just had this conversation. And what I really appreciated about that conversation, and it'll come out similar time is that, and I said this to you in the middle of this conversation, which is that you are such a good listener. Like you really paid attention to our story, to Bridge USA, the hopeful majority. It's something that means a lot to me. What is your reason for doing the show? And like, why do you care so much about these stories? Because there's ways to prep for a podcast where you show up and you're like, all right, I'm gonna ask these questions and it's what it is. Like what, what about you makes you so much more likely to actually listen, hear each other's stories? Because I feel like we need more of that in this country. Well, I genuinely love people. Yeah. Um, I, like, I like people's stories. I find people interesting and fascinating. And I also really like digging to understand people's motives. Mm. Um, I also love my country. I genuinely, I, I, I do business in 42 different countries. And so I travel a ton. And I have seen China and Estonia and Germany. I, I've seen South Africa. I, I've seen them. And I've been, and I operate in those countries. I do business in them. So I know how their banking systems work. I know how their cultures work. Um, how the ports work. How the ports work. Yeah. Or don't work. Or don't work. Um, Shout out to India. And <laughs> and I'm going to tell you something. America is the best country on the face of this planet. And it's the, the best idea that human beings have ever been able to come up with so far. And we have our problems. Lord knows we have our problems. And we are by no means perfect. And we have a historical problem that I think our culture is still working out, but it is still the best place on earth and it is still the best idea on earth. And I feel like too far too many of us 
are convinced is broken and can't return from his brokenness. And I would even argue it's not broken. Hmm. Um, I would argue that it it has a limp. Right. Um, and my point is that the people incented by power and money in our national media in New York on both Fox and CNN and CNBC and Newsmax and all of them, and to a large degree, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, there are some really well-intentioned good people in government. Mm -hmm. There are also a lot of bad ones. And I think there's a lot of power and money that corrupts even some of the best ones in D.C. And so I think our narrative and our politics has morphed into this thing that is designed by a very few people just absolutely grappling for that power and money mm. has morphed in a way that creates narratives and scare tactics that divide us. So, and I'm tired of it. Yeah. And I think the only way to battle that is to remember that it's we the people and an army of normal folks have all the power in the world to shut them up. Hmm. So let me take a quick step back, because I think when people are listening to this, so just for some context, we had Vivek Ramaswamy on, we had Andrew Yang on, I think two or three weeks ago, uh, we've had some- It's a very Asian-dominated show. It's a very Asian-dominated show. <laughs> yeah, wait till all the Indians start showing up after Vivek. You know, there's- You need to have Nikki Haley on. I know. Well, that's why you're here now. You know, we uh, just, oh, because we, we I'm like, an yes, Indian? Yeah, no, because now apparently you're a minority on the podcast. Oh, I, well, given, I, you given know what? It list. feels good. Well, I'm a fat redheaded guy. We, <laughs> we're minority. Well, okay, red, so, this red hair so makes that's, me a minority. That, that, well, that's, that's where I wanted to take you back, which is um, you... So I'm going to give the audience some context because I want, I want you to take a step ahead because of our time. So here's what I learned about you, which is that you grew up in a fatherless home. I did. In uh, Memphis, Tennessee. From right here, here originally. What year were you born? I was born in 68. 68. Okay, so... I was born five months, six months after Martin Luther King was killed in this city. Right. Okay. Wow. Right. So, you were born around that time, so on the heels of some, some crazy political tumult in the United States. Then you went to Ole Miss, fast-forwarded a lot there. I want to quickly pause on your life growing up because you made this statement, which is that America is the greatest country on the planet. And one of the things we do on the show is we always like to push back because I know what the skeptic in the audience is thinking. Come on with it. And so what they're going to say is, well, Coach Bill is this straight, white, redneck dude, privileged. Got a business. Up, got a business. Plenty of money. Going out off abroad. Yeah. Cutting down some trees. Must hate Wait, the climate. Has an Oscar. He's World's perfect. Fil filming the Memphis Grizzlies stadium. So challenge that narrative a little bit. Dad left home when I was four. Mom was married and divorced five times. We didn't have a pot to pee in or a window to throw it out of. My fourth daddy, daddy got liquored up on a half gallon of scotch and took out a thirty-eight caliber pistol and shot at me down a hallway. I had to dive out of the window to save myself. How old were you then? 17, went and got some neighbors. The cops came in as he was unloading, and my mother was cowered in the in the attic. Um, besides the the fathers, there were a lot of guys that came and went. Um, I grew up 
really trying to understand what was wrong with me. Did you have siblings? None. Um, so it was just you. So that that meant that's a lot of attention on you. There's a lot of all of you're facing the brunt of that. But I was alone too. Yeah. So you dealt with it all. Right. And you know, I I grew up. I lettered in six sports in high school, right? And so I'm this guy that works out and all that. But outside that bravado as a 15, 16, 14-year-old boy right. with all these guys in and out of your life that are supposed to be your daddies and yeah. your mentors and go, what you start to do is you start to wonder why you have such little value that you're not worth sticking around for. Like, why is it happening to me? And no. Not why is that happening to me? What's wrong with me? Mm. Why am I so mm. valueless that I'm not worth hanging around for? What is wrong with me? Mm. What is it about me that is so off-putting that I'm not worth investment? Were you religious at this time? Yeah, I mean, I was raised in the church. Um, did you ever question God because of that question of what is I, wrong with I me? I did question God, but not for that reason. Okay. Um, I'm a psychology major. I took a lot of philosophy and uh, English lit, and I, I love to read. And I would have called myself a Christian because I went to church, and my grandparents took me to church, my mother took me to church, and so that's how I grew up. Hmm. But I didn't have a personal relationship with God, and I was a Christian because that's how I was raised, but not right. because that's how I believed. And so I needed to figure out how I believed. And so I went through that in college and shortly after college. And now I will say I'm a faithful Christian because that's what I believe. And mm. that's because that's what defines me, not because of how my childhood was defined. So I want to go back. And I want to say something else about that. Yeah. I have Jewish friends, agnostic friends. Uh, I have... Uh, friends from all different walks of life. And I believe that the narrative that the inaccurate narrative that has painted Christianity into the thing that is, I'm going to hit you over the head with your Bible. And if you don't believe like me, you're evil and doomed to hell. I mean, it's a, it's not exactly a welcoming tent. You don't say. And it's not, the tent I subscribe to. The tent I subscribe to is this. I'm a Christian because I need to be, mm. because I'm failed, and I do crap every day that is embarrassing that I will never admit to you, and I'm a Christian because I need the grace of God, not because I deserve it, and that I will not judge you for one minute because I am no less, I'm, you're, you're no more failed than I am. My, my faith is one in redemption and grace and love and my deep appreciation for it because as a failed human being, I so desperately need it. And if you're interested in what that tent looks like, I'm going to try to walk that in my life and illustrate it rather than tell you about it. And if you see it, good. And if you don't, that's okay too. So... What's so interesting about that tent and the way that you're perceiving life, which is one of acceptance and one of humility and grace, and you contrast that with your childhood, 
where you're 17 and your stepdad uh, or one of your daddies, as you described it, shot down the hallway and you had to dodge the bullet. And you're seeing these men move in and out of your house. Um, there's My apartment. Your, your apartment. We, too, did Roach County. Yeah, you did Roach County. For everybody that is curious, I grew up in Staten Island, and as you know from one of the previous podcasts, you should go to Coach Bill's podcast. Uh, Roach County is one of the best ways to pass your time. Um, and so we, you know, you, you've got this childhood, and oftentimes, psychologically, you see a lot of kids that go through that come out incredibly resentful, um, oftentimes with a victimhood complex, um, not the way that you're describing your outlook on life. Why did that not happen to you? Coach Spain. I was a freshman in high school and got in a fight. Hmm. I started it. You started the fight? Yeah, I started it for sure. Well, the guy was kind of a butthole, but I started the fight. And I got him, but he got me too. Back in back in those days, when you were an athlete, if you got into trouble, you didn't go to the principal's office. You went to the coach's office, and trust me, the coach's office was a hell of a lot worse than the principal's office, and I just knew I was about to get lit up. And Coach Spain was a no-nonsense guy. He was um, the son of a cotton farmer from Milan, Tennessee. Mm. He was a old-school, roughneck, tough-as-hell coach, lots of expectations, would get in you if you weren't right. But he also had a sense of decency and goodness and compassion that was real, that you felt. You wanted to run through a wall for him, not because you were scared of him, because you just didn't want to let him down. And uh, I How went old to, was he at this time? Yeah. I was a freshman in high school. And him? Uh, Coach Spain probably was 40 then. Okay. He's dead now. He passed a few years back. Anyway, so I went in the office, and I just knew I was going to get He said, <laughs> I was Billy back then. He said, Billy, why'd you get in a fight? And I said, Coach, I'm just so angry. And I was, I was just so angry. I was angry at fatherlessness. I was angry at my circumstance. I was jealous of all the guys around me that had decent families. I was just mad. Resentful. Yeah, I was angry. And he said, well, let me tell you something. You have a right to be. He said, so much of what you've gone through is extraordinary and you shouldn't have to have dealt with it. And um, wow. I know about your background and I understand, you know, you've dealt with a lot of trauma and dysfunction and everything else. He says, but, you know, you're old enough now, you're going to have to make a decision. And he said, you need to decide if you're going to be a victim or not. And he said, because the truth is nobody could blame you if you're going to be a victim to those circumstances. But let me paint a picture of what that looks like. You're going to end up the very thing that's making you so angry now. You're going, if, if you succumb and become a victim to that and throw your hands up to it, when you're 30 years old, you're going to have a couple kids and be divorced. You're going to lose a job or two. You're probably going to have brushes with the law, and you're going to end up uh, a victim of the very thing that you are so angry about now. And he said, or you can dig your heels in the dirt and decide you're going to be a rock that other idiots break themselves on. Hmm. And he said, you have a choice. You could be a victim to circumstance or you can have those circumstances break themselves on you. Mm. And I can't say that it was an epiphany that right then I changed, but that obviously I'm 55. 
started and that stuck with me forever but it and this did was start your freshman something year. yeah so it did start something and it started to get me to realize hey i have a choice here i don't have to deal with that i might have to live in it for a while and it may drive me crazy but it's not inevitable but i can i can denounce it and say you know what that's them that's not me and also it gave me permission to start loving myself because it wasn't that i was valueless mm. It's that those people that made me feel valueless were so severely broken and awful that they were trying to drag me down the same hole that they were in. And I'd, 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 I wasn't going there. Hmm. And I decided instead of being a victim to be a rock. Hmm. Hmm. And it changed my outlook in my life. So you decided to be a rock instead of being a victim. It, over the last hour and a half, when you and I were having our conversation, one of the things that came up in that dialogue was that Everybody today has got a boogeyman in society. It seems like everybody's looking outward and saying, that's the reason for my problems. That's the reason for my challenges. Those are victims. So what about human nature is it that we are much more susceptible to that victimhood complex? And what do you think, coach, coach was in your life, but what about you made it seem like you were able to overcome that? Because it's, ch it's tough. It's challenging. And it seems like it's a trap. You know what? It, it, the, the, a trap is a great way to describe it because that's what it is. And it's a trap that once you're in, man, it's hard to get away from. Hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, when you look at a mirror in the morning and there ain't nobody else in your hotel room or your apartment, you're traveling or whatever, uh, Nobody sees you. You're around people all day long. I've been around you for an hour and a half, two hours, three hours. Alex's been around you. Yeah. You've been around people in the airport. Yeah. People have been seeing you all day. Yeah. Right? Nobody sees you like you see you. Yeah. And when it's you in a mirror, you know what you're looking at. You know what your goals are. You know what your fears are. You know what your inhibitions are. You know what your insecurities are. You also know what you've done well. Mm. You also know the crap you've done and thought that you really wish you hadn't have. Man, those late mirror stares are sometimes the most humiliate, humiliating stares. It's because you know who you are. Oh, yeah. Right? They're humbling. Okay. Well, we need to quit pointing and trying to be other people's mirrors. Mm. If you would just be your own and work on that... You will, you will find that most of what's ailing you individually has very little to do with people in your orbit. Wow. It's the guy in the mirror, dude. So what's interesting about the guy in the mirror is that looking in the mirror takes a lot of courage because oftentimes what you look... It takes honesty. What, it takes honesty and it takes some courage because sometimes many of us, when we do look in the mirror, you don't like what you see. Yeah. And, and you know what? We live in a country in a time that you have every right and ability to be a rock and fix it. Or you can not like what you see and you can start pointing at everybody else and the reason you don't like what you see. It is a choice. Hmm. So when you think about this choice, you mentioned Coach Spain being such a big influence in your life and the way that I want to fast forward a little bit. The way that you and I got to know each other is actually, I'm sure how many people find out about you, which is through this documentary called Undefeated, which um, nominated for an Oscar, won one. an Oscar, 
Uh, it won the big O. Uh, it's got the bling. It's got the dub. And <laughs> it's about... Being, that is such a 24-year-old thing. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a very, <laughs> you got the bling. It got the dub. You got the, you dub. Got the we're statue, s- baby. We're sitting, in, we're sitting in John Moran's house. You yeah, know? we are. This is that's that's. I mean, if there's anybody that's got to show up that way, it's me. <laughs> and you think about you being... So this documentary is about you being a coach at... Uh, for the Manassas Tigers in Shelby County, Tennessee, and you essentially turn some of these kids around, all African American, mm-hmm. in this high school. In there Memphis. was one white kid in the school, and he played football. He was a foster kid in seven years. Man, I wonder what it's like to be in his shoes. He was great. He loved it. You know, he was a great kid. So, so putting, I, I would love to know what that kid's up to right now, but I'm just curious. I don't know. Uh, he was a foster kid. He was gone as soon as he showed up. Man, that's such a different life. So you have this experience where you're now a coach and a formative, I guess, father figure in some ways for these kids. Um, could you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah. And why you volunteered for that specific job at this high school and what propelled you to be somebody that allowed these students and people to, that were incredibly underprivileged, as many people would say listening to this, to, to make the choice to turn their life around? Honestly, candidly, proximity is yep. why. I started my business in 2001 with $17,000 on a wing and a prayer. I'd always coached. I coached what month for, in 2001? What's that? What month in 2001? Uh, September. Okay. Like after 9-11? Right after 9-11? September 1. Wow. Okay. So when sorry, I started keep... my business. 10 okay. days. That, Spent every dime I had and hocked everything I had in 10 days and later. The, and the economy just tanked. Tanked, yeah. It's, it, okay. Long story. It was not. It was not. It was But tenuous. the point is you're no stranger to hardship. No. Not at all. I, grew, no. I mean, at this, at this point, Y'all, there's no family. No, no, no. Okay, so, keep, so yeah. keep going. So, so, so anyway, I, I show up, and, and, and I've always – I coach for a living, and I've, I've always continued to coach. And the opportunity came up to coach at Manassas because they happened to be about a mile away from my business, and a guy that was working for me was volunteering over there and asked, you know, hey, I've got a guy that's coached football his whole life. Right. You want them to help. Yeah. So I didn't go there to save anybody. Yeah, and I, I didn't coach at Manassas any differently than I coached in the suburbs or in the rural areas. I just went to coach football. But part of coaching football done right is much more than X's and O's. It's coaching the tenants that are in my book against the grain. It's coaching character, integrity, discipline, mm-hmm. civility, um, the dignity of hard work, grace, yeah. leadership, teamwork, forgiveness, all of those things, the tenets and fundamentals that are going to serve you well after the days of playing football are over. Mm. And you coach those, and you hold kids accountable to them. And it doesn't matter if you're black and poor or white or rich. A 15-year-old kid wants to be taught, mentored, loved, and held accountable. And so we just started coaching the way we always coach, good fundamental X's and O's, but more important, good life fundamentals. And... What happens is kids want to be part of something good. Kids want to be part of something successful. And so over the course of seven years, we went from 19 kids to 75 kids. And I showed up and inherited a team that was four wins and 95 losses the previous 10 years. And our last two years, we went 18 and two. And it's not a testament to me. It's a testament to kids 
who decided they didn't want to be victims anymore. Rather, they were going to adhere to a certain amount of tenets and fundamentals that were going to serve them well and that they were going to be a rock. And in doing so, they won on and off the field. And do you think that that mindset shift was the key to turning it around, that that shift in mindset? It's always a mind shift. How did you... So the documentary specifically focused on these three kicks. Uh, It's called undefeated. It's not about wins and losses on a football field. It's about not being defeated by your circumstances. Right, right. How do you inculcate that ethos? How do I what? How do you inculcate that ethos? How do you develop that ethos within these kids? Because that's no easy task. You One, consistency. Yeah. Um, I think the greatest measure of the effectiveness of a leader is the actions of the followers. Hmm. That's powerful. So if, if your team isn't doing the things you want them to do, I suggest you visit the mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Because if the greatest measure of the effectiveness of leaders, the actions of the followers, and things are not going well with the group that you seek to lead, whether it's your business or your 501c3 yeah. or your football team or maybe even your children. Right. Your family. Yeah. And, and so if you take stock of the greatest leaders of our time, one thing that's pretty universal is they always give credit to the followers when things go well, right. and they take blame when things go wrong. Right. So if, if that's a fundamental tenet of being a good leader, and then the fundamental measure of your effectiveness is the actions of the followers, if things aren't going well, maybe you ought to start thinking about your motives. Hmm. Maybe you ought to start thinking about what you need to do to get the followers in line. And that takes time because you have to ask questions. You have to understand those you, see, you understand those you seek to serve. You've got to understand the goals and dreams and fears. And if you go to work to serve in order to lead, if I go to work to do things I can to subdue your fears mm-hmm. and help exalt your dreams, if I actually in a leadership position serve you in order to lead you, and give credit to you when things go well, and shield you from things that go poorly, when I ask you to do something, you're gonna make a quick calculation in your head, which is every time this guy asks me to get involved in something, I always end up better for it. So mm-hmm. I think I will now do what he's asking me to do, and are you now not, by definition, leading? That by, they're, they're going to make the choice to follow your example which then trickles down. As a result of your service, mm-hmm. not not your not your demands, but your service. Yeah. And then judge yourself as as effective or not in that leadership position by how well your followers are acting mm. and being honest with yourself and serving mm. and being consistent with it and holding people accountable, but clearly outlining what the fundamentals and the tenets and the expectations are over time Hmm. people's minds change how did you because i'm imagining it's september or you know october of 2001 and you show up to this high school um 
in a in a very tough neighborhood in Memphis. How did you make yourself? Maybe you didn't. Maybe I'm implying this through the question, but how did you make yourself relatable to these kids, where they actually felt like you were somebody? Man, everybody wants to try best to understand that, and yeah. they throw the racial dynamic in it. Yeah, I'm a white dude. They're all black. Yeah, right. You're, you're They're from the hood. Yeah, I'm not. Um, you don't speak the language. Uh, uh, the, the vernacular. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. All that's crap. Hmm. All, all of that means absolutely nothing. It is sensationalized by TV and movies, and it is just BS. Um, here's how. Yeah. Here's how you relate. I'm a football coach, and I can help you be better at football. You interested? Mm. What did they say? Hell yeah, coach. Show us what's up. And then be consistent. Serve. Measure yourself by their success. Get out of the way when they're doing well. Right. Help them when they're not doing well. And be consistent and hold them accountable. And that's how you're going to be better at football. And that's how you're going to be better at life. You interested? Yeah. I don't give a crap if you're white or black. And I don't give a crap if they're white or black. I mean, you know, <laughs> um, the people that you do your work at Berkeley, are they all Indian? <laughs> yeah. Well, how do y'all relate to each other, dude? Right, right, right. Well, it's because we're just a bunch. I mean, of do people call you their Indian friend? Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. That 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 crap just gets in the way, and so, and and the other thing is, I'm colorblind. I I hate that. That is such bullshit. We we are not colorblind. I see a black person. Yeah, I mean, what would you do at a stoplight? A black person sees a white person. Yeah, it's you're not colorblind. That's 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 that is such a hmm. that is such a cop out. But what I can do is see beyond your color. Right. What you, I can do you is that portion of the identity. Yeah. Why, why do you think we're in this culture right now? Do you know who Ibram Kendi is? Have you heard of who? him? Ibram Kendi. Have you heard of this guy? Uh -uh. So after the BLM riots in 2020, there's a massive movement in this country by a lot of scholars to be anti-racist. And so... B by who? By scholars in this to country. To be anti-racist. Anti-racist. And... Well, hold and, on. You're telling me there's a movement by scholars to be anti-racist. Right, right. As if there was a... For a movement previously by scholars to be racist? <laughs> well, no, no. So I don't even understand well, that. Well, that's that's part of the challenge. I think is is how elite that discourse is. But the the question here is like, it seems odd to me that we've been talking more and more in our society about color and race, uh, when we should be progressing beyond that. And what you're talking about is, Manu. The reason why you're asking this relatable question is because all we think about these days is race, and. What you're saying is that's a bunch of BS in your experience. Challenge that narrative. That's just a bunch of BS in my life. So challenge, like, why do you think race has become so central in this country as a notion of dialogue and talking? It seems like all people talk about is race. It seems like that is central to our discourse, to our narrative. Can we go back to where we started on this show? Sure. Because it's a narrative that sells. Hmm. It's a narrative that sells. And it's one of the most divisive things in our country. So it's also a narrative that allows power to happen. I will tell you right now, 
if James Clyburn didn't stand up in South Carolina, Joe Biden wouldn't be our president right now. And that was all about race. Hmm. It sells. It works. Hmm. And the people with the power and the money, they know it. Just like you said, those folks are a lot better at it than us normal people. We don't even know what's bathing over us a lot of times. Yeah, the conflict entrepreneurs. Yeah. So that's is that, but is that not a beautiful example of conflict entrepreneurship? No, I, I think I think so. The Let ch- let's sensationalize race. Right. Let's make it worse than it is. Right. And and I am not saying, please don't misunderstand me, that there is not racism in this country, because there is. And I'm not saying there's not prejudice in this country, because there is. And I am not saying it is ultimately our original sin that we are still trying to repent for and figure out as a culture, because it is. I am not dismissing any of that. Mm-hmm. I do not want you to misunderstand me. Yeah. What I'm telling you is... People sensationalize it and use it in order to further deepen their pockets and divide us, and it happens on both sides, and I refuse Mm. to be a victim of that narrative. I would rather be a rock that stands up against it and says, we got to quit it. Mm. How do you respond to the skeptic right now that's listening and says, you know, I agree that there are people that are trying to divide us, but there is a real question of this notion of privilege that by the color of your skin, whether you and I don't consider it inherently in society, there's value placed on one color as opposed to the other. It's true. My pastor, now talking about faith, who died of COVID when COVID started, name was Tim, Tim Russell. Mm. Love that man. Please imagine James Earl Jones. That's him. Um, classically educated man uh, was actually the uh, the director of Geneva College. Uh, one of the smartest, most well-read people I knew. He and his wife Kathy, when they moved homes, a bunch of people from church helped them move, and they had a four-bedroom house, and it was only the two of them. The other three bedrooms, and I'm not kidding, wall-to-wall books, and he'd read them all. Uh, his aunt is the curator, I think, or at least uh, some bigwig at the Library of Congress in D.C. This guy's brilliant. And we had real talks about race. Um, One of the reasons why I love him as my pastor so much is he's a pastor and he's a theologian and he's a godly man, but my Lord, he was real. Hmm. And we could have the real conversations. And one of them was I was arguing about this whole privilege thing because as a white person, I succumbed originally to the thing that most people, most white people succumb to when they hear privilege is they think it's insulting. Hmm. Because when you hear privilege as a white person, you want to say, oh, so you want to discount everything I've done in my life to be successful as if it happened only because of, you know, of course, we take it personally and don't think it through. So I was trying to understand it better. And he said, let me just ask you something. Have you ever been to a black dentist? I was like, nope. He mm-hmm. said, have you ever been to a black doctor? I said, nope. You ever been to a black lawyer? And I said, nope. And he named a couple other professions. And he asked me if I'd ever been to a black one of these professionals. And the truth was I hadn't. Not because I wouldn't. I just didn't. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, a black person can't say that. 
they will at one time in their life be required to go to a white one of those because a black one doesn't exist or isn't available to them. Right. And he said, uh, the kids you coached at Manassas, um, even the way you grew up, Bill, didn't you have grandfathers that went to work every day and gave you an illustration of what a good marriage looked like? Yep. Hmm. When you went to Ole Miss, were you readily accepted in a fraternity? Yep. So you immediately had a social group that you could bend and rely and lean on. Yep. He said, kids at Manassas didn't have that. Mm. He said, it doesn't make what you've excelled at and done in your life any less valuable, important. But it does explain to you that the kids at Manassas, based on the skin color and the zip code at the time of their birth, put them behind an eight ball that you never experienced. Mm. And he said, that is your privilege. It doesn't make you bad for having that privilege, but it does make it sad for the people who didn't have it. Mm. And when he explained it to me that way, I recognized it exists. You know, what's so fascinating about this man is, like, we went from America's the greatest country in the world to you talking about the fact that we have a victimhood complex in society to this notion that, we need to change the way that we operate and act. All of which, if you saw in the sensationalized narrative, somebody says, this this guy must be a right winger. And then suddenly, you articulate what probably is a more nuanced understanding of privilege than what most liberal people could articulate. And so this is my frustration. Who says I'm not liberal? I'm not saying you're liberal. Who says I am? I didn't. I don't know. But that's, that's the beauty of it. You'll never know. And it's irrelevant. It is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. That's exactly like, my point. That's, I'm that's, so glad. Thank you. That's my point. It's literally irrelevant. Um, because as you say, it's the those labels are what you and I attach to, which allows us to then be their tools. Right? right. And that's what allows us to And I denounce those. Absolutely. And I think most people do. That's why I think there's a whole majority of people out there. There's an army of normal people out there. Last couple of questions I have. Hold for it. India is the largest country in the world by population. Right. Therefore, it's the largest democracy, as you've pointed out. Yeah. Um, there's privilege in India. Yeah. Sure. And there's this thing called a caste system. Yeah. That has rendered people unable to cross the privilege line. All I'm saying is, and I'm saying India, because I can use a whole bunch of other countries sure. in doing this. Um, I only make that point to say that despite, like I said earlier, despite despite privilege, despite racism, despite the original sin of slavery and the fact we haven't worked our way all the way through it yet, and despite all these problems, we still are the greatest experiment and the greatest country that humanity has ever tried and we still do have the best system available it is by no means right it is by no means whole and i don't know that it ever will be i think it will be an ever-evolving journey this democracy and republic we have but it's still the best what do you think makes this place the best what do i think makes this place the best I genuinely believe that at the end of the day, 
we figure out how to get right because of the freedoms we have to assemble. Mm. We always talk about freedom of speech. Dude, we really downplay the freedom to assemble. Um, There's countries that you can say what you want to, but only around eight people or fewer. Right. Because when you get a whole bunch of people with the freedom of speech and you get 60,000 of them together, you might have yourself a movement. Right. And we can't have movements. No movements. Can here. Yeah. And we may bounce off the curbs and we may trample each other getting there, but we did have the civil rights movement. Um, we are figuring out that it's okay to love who you want to love. Mm. We are figuring out things about ourselves that were wrong, that we're still trying to get right. That's what makes us the best country on earth. And, and I'll tell you something else. There's no doubt that our military complex, our political complex, and some of our largest corporations, especially in energy, have an interesting intertwined relationship that has affected policy and uh, decisions that have worldwide consequences. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that. And that's for a whole nother show, and I'd go deep into it if you yeah, wanted to, yeah, okay? Yeah. But I'll also tell you, this is also the same country that um, has spilled blood on soil all over this world for freedom. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud of that. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you what, what frustrates me about this conversation. What frustrates me about this conversation is not you and I talking, but when people hear bits of the conversation, take it out of context, and then we live in a 10-second world where suddenly, I can already see it because this happens in every conversation, and I wish people understood the whole nuance of it where you went through your lived experience as a fatherless child growing up in a shitty place in Memphis then going to high school with your coach who educated you, then fast-forwarding 30 years in your life, coaching uh, uh, poor black kids in Memphis on a high school football team, turning their life around. You talk about freedom. You talk about America. You talk about greatness. You talk about privilege. Like, you resemble this entire conversation, which is like, people, we have nuance in the world. We, we're not one-dimensional. So my, my question to you, and it's more of like a cry for, like, help, is like as a young person like what's your advice to us when we look at this very odd environment and we see people and it's just like this stuff is unresolvable because because no. people, people take all this stuff out of context and then it just goes all over and then you run with your narrative i mean this is the, I, sw- I swear to you this is not pandering but my advice is to join your organization uh, we have got to start having open conversation. Listen, man, I know it makes my producer cringe when I go down some of these paths. And go down the path. I, you know what? So what? I'm we producer list. We have to have start convers- Have to have uh, having conversations about race, creed, faith, politics, sexuality, all of it. We have to do it in a in a non threatening. I would say civil. You would say open manner. And, and what we will find out is that we have a lot more commonality 
than what the pundits would like us to believe. And that as, as an army of normal people having those conversations, seeing areas of need in the world and filling it, you know what? You and I can argue about every political context you want to argue about. But I absolutely celebrate the work you're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you could be completely different than me religiously, politically, and every other Lee you can come up with and all these things. But if I'm doing something in my community to help somebody that's not as fortunate as me, you and I can celebrate that. There's, there's nothing about that we can't say. That's a good thing, and I'm proud of you for doing it, and you're proud of me for doing it, right? That's Open conversation act. and respect for one another's work and community is a great place to start. And I, I think the more conversations and the more work we do in our corners of the world, the more opportunity we have to find that commonality and to fix so much of what is broken Mm. and I genuinely believe that Mm. what is your advice to a young person right now that's listening to this and is thinking about wanting to do something meaningful with their life what would you tell them find your discipline and your passion and have it intersect with opportunity I'm a football coach. I'm a lumber guy, right? I love the symphony orchestra. I think it's beautiful. I really do. My meathead ass. You're a and you love the symphony oh, orchestra? Oh, I love it. My man, meat, you're, it, you're man, a conundrum. Let, let me tell you something. <laughs> it's almost like there's nuance I, I get out the chills the when all of those instruments and, and the people behind it are, are doing that. Yeah. I think it's absolutely beautiful. And the mind that composed that, I can't even fathom the depth of being able to arrange so many different colors and sounds and noises into something so beautiful. But I will never teach somebody how to play a violin. Okay. I can't sing. I cannot play an instrument. Yeah. I, all right. You can so, just pride the wood for it. So, well, <laughs> the problem is I may be passionate about it, yeah. but I don't have the discipline. Yeah. We got to have our passion and our discipline. Yeah. I'm passionate about football because of the things the coaches meant to me. I'm right. good at football because I played it and coached it my whole life. So, my passion and my discipline intersected at an opportunity in Manassas. Mm. What I'm telling young people to do is go back to that mirror. Find out what your passion and your discipline are Mm. and have it bump into some opportunity. And when you have a passion and a discipline and you put it to good work where opportunity exists, amazing things can happen in your life and the lives of people you seek to serve and lead as a result of that service. But Coach Bill, I've been been working so hard and man, I don't see that opportunity in my life. What do you tell somebody with that mindset? Um, Where is that opportunity, Coach Bill? How long do I have to wait? Oh, I'm 55. I'm looking for the next one right now. There, I mean, look, if you if you run track, it doesn't matter if you run a 50-yard dash or a 24-mile, whatever it is, marathon. There's always a tape. 
there's always an end in that race. Mm. But in the marathon of life, there is no finish line. You never quit running. And, and the beauty of that is at the end of the race, there's a first place and a last place and all the places in the middle. But the race is over, and that's your place. And the, and the race of life, because there is no finish line, you're always in it. Yeah. Yeah. So you just keep going and you find and you find your place. Yeah. And we're all running our, our race and we're all the main character in that And just race. remember there's no finish line. There's no finish line. Till you breathe the last breath. Yeah. And yeah. I'm still running my race, bro. I don't know what's next. I mean, I've coached football for a living. I've volunteered and had an Oscar. I built a business from nothing to an $80 million a year business, 130 employees. I married a woman way out of my league and had my children are 27, 26, 25, and 24, and they're all living all over the country doing well. I've written a book. I've got this podcast now, and I'm telling you, I'm not halfway done. I want to stop you right there because this goes perfect. I think where you're going, and this goes into the question that I ask every single guest. Um, we've asked this to everybody that comes through here, and it's about your why. Because part of the reason why this thing is called the hopeful majority is because I think that to find hope, you need to have some sort of purpose, and you need to have a really strong answer to why you do what you do. Um, throughout your life, uh, and now that you're 55 and you sit in here and you've got this string of accomplishments behind you and you're figuring out that next chapter and you're looking for that opportunity, what is your why? I'm required to. My faith um, reminds me on a daily basis that I am so richly blessed beyond anything I ever deserve and I would be a hypocrite and be stomping on those blessings if I took them and kept them and hoarded to myself and enjoyed my own little life I think it's a requirement of my blessings that I seek ways to grow and give back especially to those that aren't as fortunate as I am and in some of the ways giving back could be to people who have lacked so much more money than me, it'd make you sick. But they may not be nearly as fortunate as I am hmm. in other ways in their life. And so through an army of normal folks, you have an opportunity to give back. Through coaching football, you have an opportunity to give back. Through building a business and people coming to work for you and moving up the, the, the ladder in the world, that's an opportunity to give back. There's there's so many different ways to look at that, but my why is because the Lord, for some reason, has blessed me with a with a lot of opportunity, and I would be a hypocrite to take those blessings mm -hmm. and not move them on. And so it's a requirement of my faith that I go to work every single day. You know, Coach Bill, I, I, I was telling you this briefly, but just for the audience's context, I am currently in this uh, three-week tour trip thing. And so just yesterday night, we were in Chicago, Indiana, tomorrow tonight going to san francisco i flew in today and i'm telling you I, I was taking first of all it's impossible to get to the city and so uh by airplane and so i was like not from right. not from chicago it's but, a direct from there no it's, united i right? went through detroit so oh, so oh so so here's where i'm going with this so i went through detroit and i got like three hours of sleep yesterday night right and and my my friend and colleague we may have gotten a couple of drinks because we had a good trip and so I woke up today at 6 a.m., right, uh, to get to this flight. I had a rental car, and I was kind of hungover. 
and I like was like, oh my god, do I have to go to Memphis after this? I could just go straight to San Francisco. And you know how it is when you wake up and you have to grind, you got to work, and you're like, you know. So I was like, no, but we got to go. We made a commitment. We got to go. I got on that first flight to Detroit, and from Detroit, I'm coming here, and I just get so nauseous on this flight because I haven't eaten anything, and I'm like, God, what? Why am I coming to Memphis? I love Memphis. I love Tennessee. I love Nashville. Very different places. But I have to say that the last three and a half hours that we spent together, I've learned so much from our time, and I'm incredibly grateful for not just your voice, but, uh, you know, I, I feel like you're somebody that I look up to. And that is very, there, there's, we've met a lot of people. And part of the reason I'm so grateful for today is because a lot of people my age don't have a lot of people to look up to these days. It's mm. very odd. Um, I'm honored and humbled by but, that. But, but what I mean is like, uh, I specifically mean this in the realm of politics and like the work we do. Um, there's just no role models out there, man. And so uh, I just want you to know that I'm glad that I got my hungover ass on, on that flight. And uh, I'm grateful to you for creating the space, letting us use this space and share this time. What did I tell you? That was a worth it conversation. I hope it was worth every bit of your time because I learned so much from that dialogue. And also a special shout out to the Memphis Grizzlies for letting us use their facilities. Man, it makes me want to have a live studio, but y'all know we're on the road a lot. And just like that, you should know that every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, go check out Coach Bill's podcast, The Army of Normal Folks. Remember, we got to build nuance, fight outrage, you and I together. We've got a hopeful majority to build because these conversations are needed and we know that people are waiting for them. I'll see you on episode 21. Yes, we did it.